cost of of milk and and meat and other food items has increased drastically. They just don't have the resources they need. So I think over the years, it's the need has truly increased. Yeah. That middle income gap has continued to shrink. We not only now um, provide food for people, but we try to connect them to other services. Generosity Podcast, exploring the intersection of faith, service, philanthropy, and community. I'm your host, Aaron Scott. Welcome. Glad you're taking some time to check out the podcast. You can find episodes of the Unleashed Generosity Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or on our website, which is www.unleashedgenerosity.org. You can also find the podcast on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. I'd love to hear from you through a message on our website or to connect with you on social media. So reach out. Uh, I'd love to hear some ideas of organizations or individuals or topics that you'd suggest that we dig into on future episodes. You know, with August wrapping up, we're nearing the end of summer, which has me thinking a lot about food and gardening and the end of the growing season. In the next couple of episodes, we're going to be really focused on these issues of related to agriculture and food and something that we do every day which is eat. And with COVID going on, it's a really important time, I think, to be thinking about these issues as it relates to hunger and food access. With COVID, how are people doing? Is the need increasing for the number of people who need the supplemental access to food to kind of supplement because they've had loss of income or loss of job? How have our food systems been affected? The supply chain's breaking down as it relates to Amazon or healthcare delivery, but what about food? And how do our food systems even work anyway? How does the food get from the growers to actually getting to our grocery stores? And how is that processed and the sourcing and the purchasing? How do all those pieces fit together? Well, today's guest is somebody who knows an awful lot about all those things. And her name is Rhonda Chafin, who's the longtime executive director of Second Harvest Food Bank of Northeast Tennessee. And she has a wealth of knowledge, and we're going to dig into a lot of those topics today, while she also has an opportunity to feature the great work that her organization does at Second Harvest in helping to address food insecurity. Now, please note that this conversation with Rhonda was recorded a little bit earlier in the summer. So there are a couple notes where I talk about school summer lunch programs, which a lot of those are now ended. Um, And I also quote one statistic that's clearly out of date at this point. I quoted and talked about 30 million people have applied for unemployment. That cumulative figure is much larger now. Uh, But I'm really excited to bring this conversation to you with Rhonda because it's talking about a lot of really important COVID-related issues and issues that were prevalent in in our society um, as it relates to poverty levels and access to food and how those issues were a challenge even prior to COVID. And now we're seeing them uh, be even more pressing uh, during this, this economic downturn. 
Welcome to Rhonda Schaefen. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you taking some time. I know that we've met maybe once or twice at events that you've had at your organization. Tell us some background about you personally, and then a little background about how long have you been with your organization and what is your organization and what does your organization do? So a little bit about me. Um, I've been with Second Harvest since 1993 and uh, love working at Second Harvest. This work is really I believe who I am and what I stand for to make sure that people have, you know, those basic resources that they need. That's really important to me. It's always been something that um, I've been interested in. When I was a young teen, um, we did some some work in this area when I was part of a, an organization called uh, DECA. And so I, I got my first opportunity to serve and and help those that didn't have a lot of resources like food or clothing. I, I grew up here in, in Northeast Tennessee and uh, went to uh, high school locally in the area in Bluntville at Central High School. And then um, I furthered my education um, at Virginia Intermont College. So that also is here locally um, in Bristol. So this area, this region is uh, very important to me. My family's here and um, it's a little bit of personal uh, information about me. I love dogs. I love uh, my golden retrievers. I have one right here sitting on my lap as we interview. This is Clara. So <laughs> you bark or start scratching on the door or whatever. <laughs> well, you know, for me, um, we have three girls and, uh, and with my husband, Howard, we have a daughter, Morgan, and her husband, Brad. He's also a ministry. Um, he's, he actually uh, is in camp ministry and they live in Morristown and she's a dietitian. So that's close to, to your work uh, on a professional yeah. level. Public health is really important to her and uh, as a dietitian. Sure. Um, and my husband's a retired school teacher. Okay. Uh, love our dogs. Okay. And you said golden retrievers, right? Golden retrievers. Yes. Okay. Cool. Yes. Well, we have a little like, I don't even know how much she weighs, a little fur ball. So she's a Shih Tzu poodle mix. So she is very cuddly and likes to sit on laps and get well, you mentioned since 1993, you've been at Second Harvest. That's a really long time. Have you been the executive director that whole time? Actually, I was really blessed to start as the executive director. It was a much smaller organization in the 90s. Uh, it had just been around for about six years okay. um, as far as the national network of Feeding America, formerly known as Second Harvest. Um, had just been around for a few years as well. It was formed in 1979. So. Um, you know, our work was very new um, and young, and I was very blessed to, to be able to be a part of that work, starting as the executive director. Prior to that time, I was a food donor. I worked for a food brokerage company, and I brokered private label food in the area to retail grocers. So um, I, I learned about the food bank, and when I took some time off with my daughter, at that time she was two years old, you know, I, I, I was just looking around to get back into the workforce and uh, what I might do, and my background was food. It's, uh, you know, I'd always worked at retail grocery, uh, grocery warehousing, and the brokerage company. So food was my background, and I knew that that's probably where I was going to have to look for a job because of my you know, I had a business degree, but um, food sourcing, uh, purchasing, all that kind of thing. I had, you know, a good amount of experience. So I saw the jobs listed for for Second Harvest. It was uh, located at that time in Elizabeth and on G Street. 
Oh, wow. small facility, about 10,000 square feet, very old, storing food on tractor trailers, um, you know, had one one box truck that was very old and a, a couple of pickups that were very old. Yeah. So fundraising is probably not uh, non-existent, no direct mail, no, you know. Did you get grant funds or like federal funds or how did funding work in those early stages? Well, you know, we did we did have a few grants that we um, would receive each year. So we had about six employees. If I was 27 years old now and I applied for position at Second Harvest, I wouldn't have an opportunity to be the executive director. I was very blessed. It was the right time and, and back then. And I was able to work for a small grassroots organization yeah. and uh, yeah. learn a lot, learn a lot in fundraising and communications, sure. um, work with a lot of fabulous, talented people. And together we brought the organization from a budget of about 300000 dollars to now four million dollars about a million pounds of food now we're distributing 12 million pounds of food really uh, brought the organization along we started all um, you know so many new programs uh, from summer feeding to mobile uh, units that distribute food in rural areas where there's not a pantry or where someone wants to sponsor a pantry and our backpack program for kids program that we work with the school systems so there's just so many programs that we've been able to start and sustain throughout the years as well. Yeah, that's amazing to think about, you know, like the budget of the organization growing. And then that's a remarkable number, a million pounds of food to now it's around 12 million. Yeah. It's a challenge, a little over $2 million we have to fundraise for grants and contributions and direct mail. Um, the other portion are um, reimbursement for commodities that we distribute. Um, it may be other funding that we receive um, as a result of, of reimbursement for some of the programs that we that we operate. Yeah, that's fascinating just to think about how your your background in business, but then your expertise, like you said, in kind of food acquisition, the business side of just how food systems work was probably a skill that made you a very attractive candidate to come in as a 27-year-old, very young professional at that point. But you were able to kind of understand, yeah, this is operating as a nonprofit. We're going to need donations and we're going to need grants, but we're also going to need to understand this larger system that we're a part of. So Second Harvest is an affiliate of Feeding America, and you cover what territory? We are affiliate of uh, Feeding America, which is the, the nation's food bank network. We're affiliated based on a contract we have with Feeding America. We are a separate entity. We okay. have our own 501c3, okay. our own bylaws, our own board of directors. Um, through that contract, we are assigned a certain service territory that we can distribute and serve food to those in need, but also that we we also have to stay within that service territory for fundraising, uh, which can be challenging because it's the right. county region of Northeast Tennessee, um, Hancock, Hawkins, Green, Sullivan, Carter, Unicoi, Washington, Johnson County. So it can be very challenging. Um, in our eight county area because we have limited funding. Um, we have a lot of great nonprofits that are all in the same um, same situation we're in. They have to raise money for sure. um, fabulous causes. No matter where somebody lives, 
Do they have a second? Do they have a Feeding America affiliate that covers their region? Um, they do. They have a Feeding America food bank, and all the Feeding America food banks operate very similar to our operation. They are separate entities. That's the way that um, Feeding America has designed the the food bank network, or they did early on that they would be the parent company um, that would have contracts with these food banks that are separate entities that have their own boards. Um, that uh, have to raise their own money. Uh, they would support us in any way that they can uh, by providing us with food, national food donations, national uh, funds uh, that they may be able to raise. Their commitment is they're going to help the Food Bank Network as much as they can, and they've done a wonderful job. But they have to serve 200 food banks nationwide. Wow. And with those 200 food banks, we're able to serve every county and all 50 states as part of the Feeding America Food Bank Network. So if a national donor says, I would like to give to um, Feeding America and make sure that I'm helping with domestic hunger, they can accomplish that. If a donor says, well, I really rather my donations to go locally, I want to make sure that it stays with within the eight county area, then they can give to Second Harvest Food Bank of Northeast Tennessee. Got it. Um, well, we can also assure that donors that not only will it stay within our eight county area, but it, that we can touch the entire eight county community by um, those donations because we serve approximately 140 pantries, soup kitchens, and others that uh, are 501c3s or churches that the hungry that meet our mission. Yeah. So you kind of have these affiliates in, in two directions, kind of going towards the national level and then towards the even more local level because you're covering a pretty big geographic territory. I mean, these eight counties in North, upper Northeast Tennessee, if we have listeners who aren't from this part of the country, I mean, we're talking about a pretty, pretty rural, spread out geographic area. Um, we do. Um, it's about 3,000 square miles. That, that is um, encompasses our eight-county service territory. It also encompasses about half a million as far as population. And then if you look at that half a million, over 90,000 people fall below the poverty level mm -hmm. in our eight-county region. And then if you drill down and you say, okay, out of the 90,000 people, how many of those say that they're food insecure? Right now, based that off of USDA um, reports, dropped down below 70,000. But, but I will tell you that, you know, a lot of people, specifically the elderly, they, they're not going to report. They're very proud. You know, they're always going to say, I have enough to eat when, when they may, you know, be more challenged. So we look at that. We really focus on areas that we believe uh, seniors that may uh, need food assistance, veterans. We have a veterans program now. So we're really trying to focus our efforts in areas where there's definite need, perhaps even unmet need, underserved communities, rural communities. Maybe they don't have the access or the transportation. So, you know, transportation seems to be one of the top challenges in our area because, as you said, we're spread out. It's rural areas. It's, it's mountainous, um, hard to reach. We really want to make sure that people who really need food in some of those pockets of, of uh, low-income areas that we target those areas. And we've had success in doing that. On the average, we serve about 40,000 people every month through our programs, 
um, and our agency partnership. But that number has increased significantly since the pandemic. It has increased 20%. We anticipate this summer uh, it'll probably go up to as high as 30% increase. Yeah, which is, I mean, the direct impact of the COVID crisis, the pandemic, what is it, 30 million people now have applied for unemployment. We know that rural parts of our country have not kept pace with the economic growth that's taken place over the last decade. You know, you mentioned that poverty statistic in a, in a previous interview I did with Leslie Salling with the Washington County Jonesboro Johnson City United Way, we were talking about the Alice report. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that report. So not just the people that fall below the poverty line, but this really large group of people that are at risk of being food insecure. So those are the people you're seeing that are really now needing assistance. How are you helping folks in those rural communities? What are some of the programs you you have implemented? The backpack program, it's a program we believe that's helped so many kids. They're food insecure. They're chronically hungry. We know that for a reduced lunch uh, and breakfast numbers are very high, probably over 40,000 kids in our area. Hmm. And we obviously um, can't provide that many backpacks. But what we do um, communicate to the schools is to identify children that they believe are chronically hungry. So we provide these backpack bags and it has some items that will supplement what they have at home from uh, granola bars, cereal, um, some canned entrees, canned vegetables. We know that um, it doesn't provide all the food they need, but hopefully it, it will help supplement what they have at home. Serves about 4,600 children in the region in 130 schools. Yeah. And I'm looking at a photo of a box. So like my kids go to the Johnson City schools here in Johnson City, and they've been doing the daily, you know, free lunch pickup. And we've taken advantage of that um, a number of days, not every day, but a number of days. And so that's sort of a blanket program that's open to any child. Like my four-year-old daughter, if she's in the car, like we get three bagged lunches for my 10-year-old, my eight-year-old, and my four-year-old. Uh, there was one day we were even at the park and a school bus drove by and they rolled down the window and said, we're distributing lunches. So it's not even just at those school lunch you know, distribution points. They're trying to go out into neighborhoods to improve the access and make sure that they're supplementing at this time where so many more people are hurting financially to try to do that supplementation. But we also, one day when we went through the line at our school, we got this box And I was trying to email it to myself so I could share the screen with you, but it says emergency food box. And then it's got like the list of items that are included in it, but it says project, uh, it says a second harvest food bank of middle Tennessee. And it had spaghetti sauce, cans of chicken, oats, milk, uh, cans of pears, uh, pinto beans. So all these different items and so I was curious, do you know anything about that particular resource and how it That's works? from us. That's from you. Okay. Yeah, that actually, that's from us. And Second Harvest of Middle Tennessee is the food bank in Nashville. They have, uh, over the years, developed a program, a for-profit program, to help fund their food bank where they, they broker food. And they purchase food at a really low cost mm-hmm. uh, from manufacturer. And they rebox it and they sell it to other food banks for uh, the cost, just a small markup 
for the cost that they've been able to get it at. And mm-hmm. it's significantly lower than any cost that we've been able to find. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, we've purchased from Project Preserve, already booked about 15 tractor trailer loads of emergency food boxes from Project Preserve. Mm-hmm. And we've received, I think we've received about five loads. And that's the food that, you've re- that you saw. We will continue to provide those emergency food boxes. It's not something we normally do um, because the backpacks, and we still gave the backpacks to uh, children um, that normally receive the backpacks. The teachers said, bring them, we'll send them, we'll get them to the kids that need them. And then on top of that, we've been so blessed to receive some national and state um, foundate, private foundation support from some Great. local foundations. And one of those is Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, of Tennessee Foundation. And they gave a donation and we've been able to use all of that for our um, COVID-19 relief fund. And that's where a lot of the funding has come from. Um, we haven't announced it yet, but we also received the national um, uh significant donation um, from a a national philanthropist. And that has also been very beneficial to our organization. So we've used all of those funds for our agencies that we distribute to them. Also, the schools are receiving these food boxes. And we will continue to do that as long as the funding is there. So when the school lunches stop, we're going to continue the emergency food box program with other entities. Um, and we will also provide summer meals. Normally, the summer food service program is a program that's a continuation of the school lunch where we would provide uh, lunches to Boys and Girls Club, Girls Inc., um, other uh, organizations that are feeding kids during the summer. Mm-hmm. And we run our mobile buses throughout the region and serve children where they may not have access to a children's program. And we would pull up into uh, the housing authority or low-income mobile home areas um, or just uh, low-income housing where there's, where there's pockets of, of children that really need meals. And we served uh, about 70 locations with um, our mobile uh, summer meals and our, our, our stationary meals that we work with the on-site. This year, it's, it's particularly challenging um, because food is very difficult um, to find as far as purchasing. Our purchases have been delayed significantly. Many of those emergency food box orders were actually ordered as soon as we heard about um, COVID-19 spreading throughout the nation. And we knew that it would probably be in our area and we were going to need additional food. The food banks all over the nation are actually ordering those food boxes from Project Preserve. Project Preserve is the the for-profit arm of the Middle Tennessee Second Harvest Food Bank. We anticipate that we will be bringing in those loads throughout the summer and into the fall. We've also purchased straight truckloads of, of canned goods from directly from manufacturers that we have relationships with as well. And we're also going to pack our own boxes as soon as we can get volunteers back.
from our agencies as far as the amount of food they need has increased. Yeah. And we're going to be able to provide fresh produce boxes. And in those boxes, they'll get about, uh, this is an example, but they vary from, from load to load. But the box I saw just last week had a bag of potatoes. It had a head of cabbage. It had carrots, uh, green beans, and tomatoes. And so just some good, wholesome, fresh produce that, you know, families can make meals with and, and yeah. you know, good, healthy, nutritious food. And we're able to get those, you know, those food boxes for a couple of dollars a box mm. that provides 20 pounds of produce for a couple of dollars. That's great. So how, who's the partner that you said it's a local like food co-op that's, is it, are these it's local a, actually, um, we have a couple of food bank co-ops that food banks come together to form. And we have a food bank co-op in Atlanta and it's a Southeast uh, food bank co-op. And we also have another co-op that we work with in Indianapolis called Gleaners. You know, basically we give them a few dollars for, for those boxes of produce to cover the cost of the box and, and the picking and packing. Um, and then we, we have to transport um, those boxes to us. Uh, so it's a really, we believe, um, efficient, effective way to get as much food into the hands of people who need it. In just a few weeks, we also will, will be able to um, start distributing. The acronym is CFAP, and that's the coronavirus farm-to-family um, product from USDA. It's through mm-hmm. the CARES Act um, that came from the federal government. And so we're able to really provide, um, are going to be able to provide fresh boxes of uh, meat, fresh milk, and um, fresh dairy products like cheese and butter and yogurt. The beauty of this program from USDA, it doesn't cost the food bank anything. It's purchased through USDA from the farmer, um, and then they've identified um, uh, different vending companies that pack it that we're working with that call us and say, we've got the product ready. We're going to ship that to you when we book that. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to bring as much of that product into our region as possible. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me is how you're talking about the impact of the CARES Act. And, you know, so we passed this $3.2 trillion uh, spending bill to try to provide relief. And you're, so you're telling us about a very practical example about those federal dollars will be coming into local and regional communities mm-hmm. to, to increase access to not only food, but to increase access to like produce and meat. So that's, we're not just talking about processed food and, and canned food. And another thing that struck me as you were talking about, you know, during the COVID crisis, all of our systems that we normally rely on are breaking down, right? So you mm-hmm. rely on volunteers, you rely on workers to be doing the jobs that they normally do to get the food from where it's grown to where it's processed and packaged to then mm-hmm. get distributed. Once you start throwing kinks in this supply chain system, you're seeing really long delays on the food even being accessible. You ordered food and you're still waiting on it to be delivered. And so that's right. It's a time for us to really ask some tough questions. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of resilience and a lot of people really wanting to help. And that's great. So how do we leverage that generosity and the people wanting to help? But how do we also take this opportunity to learn and say, our systems aren't foolproof? What lessons should we be learning to sort of incorporate changes into 
to our systems. You know, I think that we that we were really prepared, had a good supply of food that we had purchased because we had just gone out of the holidays mm-hmm. uh, in December and January when when um, we had distributed a lot of food and we had just brought in quite a bit of um, inventory to replenish. With the lag in uh, the order, we still had a good amount that we've been able to to supply our agency. So now, you know, thinking back, should we keep an emergency inventory on hand, keep a truckload of emergency food boxes at all times for times of disaster? But the main thing is uh, knowing that that we have a plan. And if there is a pandemic, um, I think we've reacted well. I think part of the reason we've done that is because our national organization provide us, provided our organization with so many resources, so many examples of documents, the best way to sanitize, the best way to uh, continue your operation, um, things to think about um, as we go through the pandemic to make sure that we keep our staff safe. And we reacted very quickly in transitioning our non-essential staff to to go remotely. And uh, that's been working well. They've been working um, harder than they've ever worked before because there's been so many opportunities to uh, collaborate and serve and help uh, more people that need it. And what we do find is people call, well, we've got an opportunity, but we need you to get that proposal in tomorrow. <laughs> uh, it's yeah. so it, the entire time we've, we need a letter of request today. Yeah. We need the proposal tomorrow. Hundreds of emails of people, um, you know, wanting to do this, wanting to do that. Um, so it's, it's been really wonderful. I think our staff and our team and our organization has done a fabulous job during this time. You've kind of been in reaction crisis mode for all of us have been in our different spheres of influence and in our and in our world. But I think everyone feels that crisis mode. Like I want to help, I want to do what I can, but I, sometimes I just don't know how to connect the dots. E- even before this, the system wasn't perfect, right? I mean, there are still unfortunately people in our society that are hungry. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And there are people that aren't getting access. So we need to continuously be reevaluating what are we doing? How are we doing it to try to say, how can this be more efficient? Um, But I'm just kind of thinking about like the food box I got. Um, You know, you all distributed that and you're getting them to the schools and they're going out to families. That the food box comes to my family. My family probably doesn't need that food. We certainly don't need that food as much as somebody else because I've been fortunate to be able to keep my job. And and I do, I'm fortunate to be able to work from home right now safely. But at the same time, because we have that supplement, we've been also buying food and trying to stock our church food pantry and Uh and volunteering with local food pantries. So there is this kind of trickle down and and spread out effect that at some point you can't build a perfect system. You have to rely on people to, to be generous and be loving and try to help in their own circle of influence, you guys are kind of in the middle between these national forces trying to solve the problems and local people doing things at the grassroots level. And you're kind of in the middle trying to allocate resources and and speak languages up and down. I imagine that's really, really challenging. 
It is. And, you know, one of the things we have identified that we really, truly in our partnership with the schools in, in the in the food box distribution, if you need it, if you need the food box, take it. If you don't uh, for your family, leave it for someone who does. And when we when we first started the food box program, we had to limit the amount of food boxes to every school. But we've also uh, distributed these emergency food boxes to our mo- through our mobile food pantry. But our agencies are not distributing these, these emergency food boxes. They're just distributing the case quantities and they have to break those case quantities down and make food boxes. So just a, a good combination of all that together. Still challenging, but, uh, but we're getting there. Yeah. And so many of these things are intertwined. Like, I mean, some people are probably wondering like, well, if you did a million pounds of food and now you're doing 12 million pounds of food and you used to have a budget of this and now you have a budget of that, like, are we just kind of self-perpetuating the problem? Like, why is the need so much greater now than it used to be? There's a lot of reasons though. And I kind of touched on it earlier that, you know, like economic opportunity has not been evenly distributed across our society, just like access to healthcare, we're seeing gaps in that system. So again, our system isn't perfect. And I'm not interested in exploring all the people to blame or poking holes in everything. I'm really interested in asking different people's perspective on like, what again, what should we be learning? How can we be improving so that the next time a public health pandemic comes along, and hopefully it's a really long time from now, but there's no guarantee that it won't be five or six years from now. How can we make sure that we're actually better equipped as a society to make sure that people are better prepared to, to survive? Do you, I mean, do you have just thoughts about how your work connects to economic development? Work connects to all those things. And it also connects to government. It sure. connects to, you know, federal feeding programs. You know, if, if SNAP programs are truly cut, we know that that we're going to have to pick up and we're going to be the safety net. From the mid-90s to now, we have more seniors that have rolled off of the payroll and now they're trying to live on fixed incomes and yeah. social security and it's just not enough. I see families every day that you know, they draw less than $1,000 in Social Security combined together between the two of them. And I don't know who can live on $1,000 a month. And we know so many people in this region that have worked hard for their entire lives and they have no pension. They thought Social Security would be enough. And now they're unable to work or maybe they've had to go back to work and they're in poor health because they're elderly in their 70s and 80s and they don't have enough to live on. So that's what I've seen over the past years that we've seen more seniors um, really trying to survive and they don't have the resources. But I've also seen, you know, just the working poor and the fact that number one, our wages really haven't come up that much. Yeah. Um, if you look at when I first started and look at uh, the wages, it, they really haven't changed much especially for those that are in fast food or retail, they don't have the uh, means to, to get a better job or the job's just not, there's not opportunities. And, you know, SNAP benefits really hasn't increased. So, you know, I've talked to, I've talked to elderly folks that their SNAP benefit is $6 and cost of, of milk and, and meat and other 
food items has increased drastically. They just don't have the resources they need. So I think over the years, it's the need has truly increased. Yeah. That middle income gap has continued to shrink. And, um, and so now a lot of those folks have gone to the low income area because they've aged. And then we've seen a lot of young people that now um, are trying to make it on their own. And that we think shrunk the middle income uh, area. And so it's challenging at best um, with so many people in this area that really are not able to make it. And I think that over the years, that um, poverty rate hasn't changed. If Mm. anything, when I first started, it was at about 16% Mm. in our region. And now it's about 20%. So if anything, it's increased. You know, those that are in poverty, what happens? Their health um, is not good. When we when we look at Dr. Wyckoff's study on people in poverty, what their lifespan is and what their health is, yep. it's not good. So it 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 is directly in relation to health, to economic, to government. It all is connected. Yeah. And what if we can if we can make connections and partnerships and collaborations. Um, we not only now um, provide food for people, but we try to connect them to other services so that we can stabilize their lives, so that we can lift them out of the situation that they're in. That is in our strategic plan. It is in the forefront of our work that we don't constantly, um, we're going to always provide food, but we want to work with our agencies and with partners to make sure that people have access to food and other services, hopefully to stabilize so they don't have to depend on an emergency food box. Yeah. And and you you hit on it, and I'm glad you mentioned it. I mean, obviously, I work very closely with Randy Wyckoff at ETSU, and he talks about those three legs of the stool, that, that poverty is connected with health and it's connected with yes. education. You can't just address one leg of the stool and expect that you're going to bring about sustainable change. So as we think about the resilience and our systems and public policy and government and all these kinds of things, we can't be like sitting in our silos, like public health is connected with healthcare and that is connected with economic opportunity and all this is connected with education. So, I mean, the work that you guys are doing is a really key cog in this very interconnected system we have. And I'm glad that you guys are here and are doing the good work you do. I'm glad you gave a shout out to some of your staff too. I I know Adam Derrick, uh, he was a volunteer when he was a Milligan student with uh, uh, Family Promise when I worked there. And then I know Jesse uh, Stevens as well. She and I were in the master's program together at ETSU. So I can personally attest that some of your staff are really, really great people with really, really strong hearts for service. I like to ask people this, and it hasn't woven itself into every interview and every episode, but do you have a favorite like quote or passage or inspiring, like, like what inspires you to do what you do? Like, what's the why for you? For me, it's my faith. And it always has been strong faith in in this work and guided um, with my faith and and with my relationship with Christ. It has, it has been my driving force, the strong support when, when there's, when there's challenges that um, that I face or the organization faces my daily devotion in John. And there's so much 
inspiration there to continue. And we're not going to be left. We're not going to be forsaken. Um, that's probably uh, one of my favorite uh, scriptures in Deuteronomy 31.8. Mm. I know each day I couldn't get through the day without it. Thanks for sharing that. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really wonderful conversation. I am really grateful for the work that you and your staff do. I also just want to make sure that people know where they can find you. We talked a lot about the increased need uh, that you all have and how you all are responding to that increased need during this time and in response to the COVID pandemic. If people want to find you on the web or on social media, how do they find you? Um, they, they would find us at Net Food Bank. That's N-E-T Food Bank. Dot org. They can also call us at our phone number 279-0430. You know, we're located in Kingsport, but again, we serve the entire region. But the best way to find out about our services and what we do is our website. I'm just so thankful that you um, allowed me to, to uh, join your podcast today because I know that uh, uh, we have to get the word out. We have to constantly be talking about this work. So many people still will say to me, well, I really don't know what Second Harvest does. Yeah. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm really not familiar with how you work and uh, they don't know our agency partnership and our network or they don't know our programs. You know, they may not even know an emergency food box or a backpack was from the food bank. We don't do it for the recognition, but, uh, but we do it because people have a need. We're, we're glad to help people that have need for food or other uh, resources because we can connect them to what they need. And we're, we're always open to the three main how people can help, and that's volunteer their time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can make a food donation, um, food drive, or they can make a monetary gift, and they can donate online. It's so easy to go on our website and make a monetary donation. That's awesome. Well, I hope that uh, this provides people, like you said, a little bit more awareness about the issue of hunger and food access, particularly in this critical time where we're seeing a lot of people uh, really feel the pinch. Um, The work that you all do is so important right now, especially. And I hope that this gets you maybe a couple volunteers or maybe a new donor or just, if nothing else, more awareness about how food systems work and the good role that you guys are playing in that whole process. So thank you for all you do. Thank you for your time. And I look forward to uh, talking with you sometime soon. Thank you, Aaron. I, I really appreciate it and look forward to talking to you as well. All right. Blessings. To you as well. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining in to today's conversation. I hope that you find these conversations with uh, faith leaders, nonprofit leaders to be enlightening, to learn a little bit more about some of these social issues and causes and challenges uh, that people and organizations are helping to address in our communities. You know, there's an awful lot of talk these days about where our information comes from and how the information we get through news or media Are they honest opinions? Are we getting the real issues and the real perspectives of of real people? Or are we hearing some sort of bias for an agenda? You know, if you want to hear straight from the people who are working on the front lines, if you want to cut through the political talking points on an issue, why not just ask the experts who are actually serving in grassroots organizations uh, to actually 
help people, to serve their clients, and to help improve their neighbors' lives. These are the types of conversations uh, we're having here on the Unleashed Generosity podcast. And if you find these conversations valuable, do me a favor and go to Apple Podcasts and fill out a rating or a review. That'll really help other people find it and uh, hopefully increase the visibility. Or other ways you can help spread the word, uh, give our Facebook page a like, follow us on Instagram, share our website, which again is www.unleashedgenerosity.org. Tweet out an episode link of one of the episodes that you found to be an especially insightful conversation. And thanks so much for helping spread the word. Thank you again to my friend, Daniel Cooper, for allowing me to feature his music on the podcast. You can find a link to Daniel's music, as well as a variety of other links in the show notes. Uh, Second Harvest Food Bank of Northeast Tennessee, their website is linked. And thanks again to Rhonda for being my guest today for the episode. Uh, A couple other links that I really want to draw your attention to. Uh, Dr. Randy Wyckoff, the Dean of the College of Public Health, Rhonda mentioned how he has a lot of really important research, which he talks about the intersection between health, education, and economic opportunity, and how all of these issues are intertwined. And as we think about addressing them in our society and in our nonprofits and in our government um, public policy approaches, we really need to be taking a integrated approach to addressing these issues. So I'm going to link to two of those videos uh, that Dr. Wyckoff uh, has available on YouTube. Thanks very much for listening. And until next time, unleash your own generosity. Yourself and love.